Um, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles right now to our passage we're looking at today from 1 Peter. Right near the end of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So when you found that passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, start at verse 3. Could you stand together with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word? And I'll read this for us. <clears throat> so Peter writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Pause for a moment. This is one of the ways that Peter's letters are so cool because he's writing to a church very much like us that is existing post-Jesus' ascension. Jesus has been resurrected, ascended into heaven. They've come to faith in him after he's ascended. So very much like us, they've never seen Jesus physically, but they've come to know him just as we have by faith. So he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, I ask that you would illumine the preaching of your word now. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to accomplish. Through your word, you've promised us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to your void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, there is any number of theories out there right now as to why we're seeing an increase in forest fires across our country, um, as in BC in particular, over the last 10 to 15 years. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the reality is, <clears throat> whatever the reason, the fact remains that forest fires, they just seem to be now a regular part of our summers, and they present a dangerous threat to everything from our communities, to our air quality, to the lives of the men and women who risk their lives to fight these fires in order to try and help control them. In the introduction to his New York Times bestselling book, Think Again, Adam Grant recounts the story of one fire captain, a guy named Wagner Dodge, and 14 other smoke jumpers in particular, who were fighting a fast-moving fire in the hills of Montana one scorching August in the summer of 1949. Now, they had been uh, dropped in, parachuted in near the top of a place called Man Gulch, and they were descending a slope towards the Missouri River when the fire, which was on the opposite slope of the mountain, ended up jumping the river and was now headed directly towards them with uh, apparently flames reaching upwards of 30 feet in the air, covering ground and blazing through forest as fast 
that it covered the length of two football fields in less than a minute. So now, obviously, the game plan has changed from fight to flight. But what this means is that now they had to ascend the slope that they had just come down in order to reach safety, with now the fire coming directly behind them. But as they reached the top, they were scrambling for the top of this mountain with just 200 yards left of dry grass between them and safety, the fire captain, this guy Dodge, he did something which was incomprehensible to the rest of his crew. Instead of continuing to run from the flames, instead he bent down, took out matches, and began lighting the grass on fire in front of him and beckoning his crew to come over to where he was. Now, nobody did. They all basically believed he'd lost his mind. They were like, he's trying to kill us. Like, what's going on? But what they failed to realize is that what Dodge was doing in that moment, in this desperate moment when the fires were coming down towards them, is he was lighting a survival fire. That is, he was removing the area of fuel for the wildfire in front of him where he could then lie face down with a wet cloth over his mouth and the flames could now rage around him instead of over him. And tragically, uh, 12 of the 15 smoke jumpers perished that August afternoon in Montana, but Dodge himself survived. And the reason was because this act that seemed completely counterintuitive in the moment, in the midst of danger, and yet ended up being the very thing that saved his life. And I bring up that story from Grant's book as we continue in this teaching series we're calling Information, which again, we're looking at all these spiritual disciplines that are all about forming us more and more into the image of Jesus because of the discipline that we're going to be looking at today through the lens of this passage in 1 Peter, namely the discipline of praise, or what has been classically referred to as the discipline of worship, which I get could seem like one of the strangest things in the world to suggest we need to discipline ourselves to do. I mean, maybe you're just thinking, okay, I get how we might need to discipline ourselves to study God's Word more, or maybe to start learning new practices we've never tried, like fasting or silence and solitude. But how in the world do you and why would you discipline yourself to worship? To which I want to remind you, first of all, that that word, our English word worship, comes from an old English word, worship, which, had, which carried with it the idea of ascribing worth or value to people or things. And considering the many created things that Paul tells us at the beginning of Romans, that we are, our hearts are prone to worship over the Creator, I think already that makes sense of like why we would need to train our hearts over time to make sure that we are worshiping the Creator of those things instead of His creation. But I'd also want to remind you, and this is particularly what we're looking at today, who it is that Peter is writing this letter to. Namely, a church living under severe persecution at the hands of the tyrannical Roman emperor Nero. Nero, who had some of the bloodiest hands in all of Christian history. Which means, like understanding this context now of what they're living in, Peter's not simply telling these believers, hey, I know life's hard sometimes, but keep your chin up and continue to praise God no matter what. He's telling these believers to continue to pray, praise God as their family members are soaked in kerosene and used as human garden torches. That level of persecution, which hopefully helps you to see why I'm saying this would be a discipline we would need to train ourselves in and not something that just, just happens 
because we're followers of Jesus. It doesn't just happen because someone broke out an acoustic guitar youth group. It's something we need to train ourselves to do. Because I don't know if it's the same for you. Maybe you're different. But when I'm in the midst of stress, when I'm in the midst of difficulty, when I'm in the midst of tragedy, praising God, that's like the very last thought on my mind usually. I'm not like I should be praising God right now. It feels, to be asked to do that even, feels as counterintuitive as lighting a fire even as I'm being chased down by fire, just like that captain. It, it feels wrong, and it feels wrong to be asked to do that. But what's important to realize, and we're going to look at this a bit more deeply as we go this morning, Peter isn't appealing to this oppressed church to practice some kind of Christian stoicism. You just like grit your teeth and bear it even as they're being martyred for their faith. Rather, He's calling them to worship. By calling them to worship, he's presenting them and us with the one hope we have in life in order to not be crushed under the weight of suffering and hardship and oppression. That's what he's presenting them with. How? How does worshiping God keeping you, keep you from being crushed under the weight of these things that we all face in our lives? Maybe that's what you're facing right now this morning. You're feeling crushed under the weight of your life circumstances. Certainly, this church Peter was writing to, they were experiencing this weight. And the answer is this. Worship is our one hope in those moments because the sole purpose of worship, the sole aim of what we're doing in worship is to focus our eyes on Jesus, to turn our gaze back to him who is himself our one hope in this life. That's why it's our one hope to do this which is something that Peter actually knew from firsthand experience. If you remember that scene from Matthew 14 where Jesus comes to them one night walking on the water while they're out in the boat, and he calls Peter to come out onto the water with him, and Peter, obedient to Jesus, walks out and he does it. He actually walks on the water towards Jesus until what? He looks around him, he takes his eyes off Jesus, sees the wind and the waves around him, and starts to sink. Right? It's only in looking to Jesus crying out to him, calling out to him that he is rescued by Jesus, brought back to the boat. I think that's a great way to think about it. Calling out to Jesus as the wind and the waves around threaten to sink us. That's a great way to think about the discipline of worship that Peter is going to teach us about in particular in this passage today. It's about fixing our eyes back on the one who loves us and who has all authority and power either to rescue us out from the difficulties that we're in or to rescue us through them as we go. Fixes our eyes back on him. So as we look at this discipline of worship from our passage this morning, in order to help us all in learning what it is more clearly, as well as learning how to practice it, particularly in those times when it feels completely counterintuitive to do it, I want to look at our passage today and kind of break it up into two main sections. We're going to talk about the basis for our praise, and then the context of our praise. It's those two things, the, the basis for and the context of our praise. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, I just want to invite you, if you could open it again to that passage in 1 Peter, follow along with me as we dig into this next discipline together. Okay, so let's look first of all at the basis for our praise. What is the basis for praise? And to begin, I want to start off by defining <clears throat> what exactly we mean when we say praise. Again, we're, we're saying it's this idea of 
calling out to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, but what do we actually mean by this word praise and worship? Because for a lot of us, when we hear that word, we hear praise, we hear worship, most of us think about what? Singing, music, some kind. In fact, most churches, you'll hear people say stuff like, we're going to enter into a time of worship now, and what they mean is singing, we're going to start singing, which isn't wrong. That's not wrong. It, it, we certainly do worship God through our singing. It's just defining worship far too narrowly. Uh, it's defining the whole of worship by just one aspect of what it is, right? It's not as though, like, as Peter was sinking under the water, he just started to sing a chorus of oceans and then fixed his eyes on Jesus, and Jesus was like, all right, I'm going to raise you up. No, right? That, that's, <clears throat> that's not how it is. For far beyond singing, worship is so many things. Uh, it's, it's, it's all the disciplines we've been looking at. It's the study of God's Word. Worship is about prayer. It's also about remaining quiet before God. Worship is about feasting on good food and wine with friends. It's also about fasting from food. Worship is about our service to God. It's also about taking a break from service in order to experience Sabbath rest. It's all these things. It's posture. It's attitude. It's so many different things. point is this. Worship, I'm saying, is anything we do in response either to who God is or to what he's done for us. Anything we do, that becomes an act of worship. That's why we can say worship includes singing, but that's not all it is. Okay, so but then with that definition in hand, we can now look to our passage and have a clearer idea of what it is exactly that Peter is calling this church to do. So look with me first of all again at verse 3. Beginning of verse 3, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's starting off this whole thing here. Peter is simply saying, hey, God is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of your praise and your worship, even in the midst of what you're experiencing. Okay, why? Because of everything he goes on to say in the next verses here in 3 through 5. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so there's a lot going on there, but essentially what Peter lists here are three main things that God has given believers, he's given to his church, in, out of his great mercy that make him worthy of praise. So what are they? First of all, in verse 3, he says God has given them new birth. In verse 4, he says he's given them an inheritance. And then in verse 5, he says he's given you salvation. Okay, three gifts God has given to his church, which I'm going to argue are actually all the same gift. They're one gift being described in three different ways. Consider this, the new birth, first of all, that we see in verse 3. This is very much the, the spiritual birth that Jesus was teaching Nicodemus about in John 3. If you know this story, Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night to ask him about his teaching privately. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Meaning, not any kind of like rebirth physically with our mothers, but a spiritual rebirth that takes place when the Spirit uh, brings about this new birth in our lives. But then look, this inheritance in verse 4 and the salvation in verse 5 are really just different ways of describing the results of or the effects of our new birth in Jesus. For, for instance, when he talks about the inheritance in verse 4, 
we, we read again and again that those who have that new birth, who've been adopted into God's family, we are now heirs of everything that's, that belongs to Jesus. So this inheritance is a, a result of having new birth. Or the salvation that you see in verse 5. Those who have been saved from God's just punishment for sin have the new birth. And therefore, we are the ones who've been born again because of Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf. So they're all really aspects of this new birth, this gift that every believer in Jesus has now and make God worthy of our praise. And what's so encouraging and amazing about what Peter's doing in this passage is what he goes on to tell these believers now about how secure that gift is that they have from God. How, how secure this gift is to people who are having their property, who are even having their lives taken from them. Peter is saying, you have something from God that can never be taken away from you. No matter what trials, no matter what persecution you might face, it's secure. And where you see that is, first of all, back in verse 3, look with me there. He talks about them being given new birth into a living hope. Living hope, we sang about that this morning. Now, hope is actually a theme that Peter uses throughout his letters, but what's important to know, and we've said this before, whenever the Bible uses the word hope, it's never talking about some kind of just wishful thinking, like, oh, I hope I can get married someday. I hope the Canucks could finally even just make the playoffs, let alone win the Stanley Cup. You know, we talk about it that way. But hope, when the Bible uses it, is very much different. It's a confident expectation of something based on the promises of God. That's what the Bible means when it talks about hope. So when Peter calls it a living hope, really, I think he's just trying to give more emphasis to the surety of the promise. It is living, it's alive, it's something that whenever you go to make use of it, whenever you go to cash in on this promise, you're never going to get an error or a no longer valid message come up on the screen. It's secure, it's living, it's, it's alive. And we see that as well as in verse 4 and 5. Look there. Peter says, this gift of God to them and their new birth is something that can never spoil, never fade or, or perish. It's kept in heaven. <clears throat> it's not kept here. It's kept in heaven for you shielded by God's own power, which is basically saying this inheritance is absolutely yours. You have it, and yet it's kept somewhere where, as Jesus said elsewhere about treasures, moth and rust don't destroy. Thieves can't break in and steal. It's kept secure for you no matter what. But what makes this promise most secure of all is what Peter says at that last part of verse 3. Look again. He talks about new birth into a living hope made possible for them through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's made possible through the resurrection of Jesus, which might sound off or wrong. Maybe you think like, well, isn't our salvation accomplished by Jesus' death on our behalf? Yes, and yet I think all Peter is referring to here is the way that we say this so often. Jesus' resurrection is the confirmation that he really was who he said he was, that he actually was God and man in all these things. And so his death wasn't just an act of like martyrdom and sacrifice. It actually did accomplish our salvation. Okay? And what's great about that and the way it relates to our inheritance is that if Jesus is victorious over death and everything that belongs to him is ours when we have this new birth, it means that whenever our greatest enemy, death, <clears throat> tries to take what Jesus has promised to us, even that can't take it from us. It's secure even in the face of death. So you're beginning to see it now. Peter is working right from the beginning here to remind these readers, both then and today, who God is, as well as all that he's done for us, that is, the, this is the basis for praising him, 
So yeah, he begins with a command to praise God, even to these persecuted believers, but without even missing a beat, he's like, and, and here's why. Here's why you can do that. Helping them and us to see that because of all that God has done for us in Jesus and where our inheritance in him is kept, there's a profound security around us that we all have in him that struggles and persecution and death can't touch. It'd be, it'd be a little bit like if you were drafted to an NHL team and then somebody from the future came and told you, hey, this year your team is going to win. Wait, Johan's here. I'm going to use Whitecaps instead. You're drafted to the Whitecaps and someone comes to the future and says, this year you guys, you guys win. You win everything. Wouldn't that change your whole perspective on the rest of the season? Whether you won, lost, injuries, setbacks, it wouldn't matter because you'd know, well, in the end we win. I wonder how this is going to work out because, it, you know, it would look bad sometimes, right? But you know we're going to win. I think that's exactly what Peter is doing here, the hope he's trying to bring for every single one of his readers. Then and today, he's saying, guys, no matter what you might be facing, no matter how dark the night might get, you can continue to serve and love and pray and sing to our God. Why? Because of the surety we have in the promise, because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It means in the end, we win. No matter what's taken from you here, you win. That's the whole basis of our praise and why, Peter, he's not being cruel here, why he can still call these believers living in unimaginable suffering to praise God even in the midst of that suffering. And so when we think about <clears throat> what does this look like for us to practice this today, I think one of the first things to remember is we need to return to these same truths. Who is God? What has he done for us? We need to return early and often to these things again and again to remind ourselves as well as to remind one another. Who is God? What has he done for us already? And the security of the inheritance that we have that even death can't take from us. I think that's the first thing we need. <clears throat> Second thing to remember is to respond to those truths. Remember, worship is our response to all that God has done and who he is. Okay, so we pra the practice is not just to recall who God is, recall what he's done, but to respond to those truths <coughs> in acts of worship, which yeah, are going to include singing, but they're gonna, are going to include a prayer, silence, feasting, fasting, serving, resting, all these things. Respond to those truths in worship, no matter what circumstances we're facing. See, Apostle Paul says in places like 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, be joyful always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Or later on in his letter to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. <clears throat> Here's the confidence of this. But in everything, by prayer and petition, our acts of worship, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And here's the hope and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing. The reason I'm calling this a discipline at all, saying that worship is about far more than just a Sunday morning experience for an hour and a half, but something we need to practice every day of our lives and throughout every day, is not just for our present encouragement. It is that. You will be encouraged as you do it. 
But the worship of God, who as we've seen, he's absolutely worthy of our worship, needs to be your consistent, disciplined way of being at all times. Because again, it's the one thing that is going to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in the midst of crushing circumstances and failures that will come. Regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, this is not an exclusively Christian thing. This is the thing for followers of Jesus that keep your eyes fixed on him, that will remind you you still have hope, even when hope seems lost. Because the problem is, if, if this isn't already your regular practice, I'm saying we need to practice it now, because if it's not already your regular practice, it's not impossible. But it's going to be infinitely harder to start praising in the midst of those circumstances when they do come if it hasn't already been your ready, steady practice throughout each and every day. Because these circumstances come for all of us. But it's just to say, the call of this discipline is about the practice of regularly keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus through the discipline of worship in preparation for those times when the wind and the waves all around us threaten to sink us. Okay, so that's the basis for our praise. The last thing I want to look at together with you from our passage is the context of our praise. The context of our praise. Where you see that context, at least to Peter's original audience here, is in verse 6 now. Look with me here. Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So again, context of this church that they're in, that Peter is writing to, is suffering, is grief, is trials of all kinds. And I want to remind you again, this is not suffering like having to you know, fly coach on a transatlantic flight or trials like trying to get on a BC ferry in the summer when you don't have a reservation. These are deeply suffering people living through persecution that most, if not all of us, have never experienced in our life, at least not in North America, for our faith in Jesus. In fact, the word Peter uses for grief in this verse, lupeo, is the very same word Matthew uses to describe Jesus' emotional state in the Garden of Gethsemane when he becomes sorrowful under the weight of all he knows he's about to face. He's using the same word to describe this grief that this church is experiencing. And I don't know, maybe suffering like that, maybe grief like that, that's the context you find yourself in this morning. You all look very well and put together here, but I know some of you are experiencing grief and trials like that in your lives that maybe none of us can see right now. It took everything you had this morning just to get out of bed and come here. I don't know if that's your experience, but my point is this, there's hope for all of us in this passage. But if that's where you find yourself this morning, if you feel like that, you should know that Peter is writing to men and women suffering just as deeply as you are. Their context is not worse or better than yours. It's, it, it can be just as bad as yours. And again, just as we read, it's in the midst of this suffering and grief that the church is experiencing. And Peter tells them, in this you greatly rejoice. <laughs> you greatly rejoice to these people experiencing this deep suffering. What are they rejoicing in? everything he just finished laying out in verses 3 through 5, but the basis for their praise. So somehow, somehow what Peter is saying to his readers then and today is that the basis for our praise gives us sufficient warrant to praise God whatever context we might be in. There is no context where this doesn't make sense. 
that it's possible at least, okay? It's possible at least to praise God even in the midst of overwhelming persecution and grief, which I don't know. Maybe it's different for you, but I think when I think about myself, if you're like me, it doesn't sound possible at all in those moments, right? That doesn't feel possible. It sounds as counterintuitive as somebody lighting a fire as we're running away from fire and saying, come over here, come by me, and you're just like, what? I'm not going over there. It feels counterintuitive to be asked to do this. And I think the reason it feels that way is because I think even without thinking about it, we put a kind of unseen, unspoken filter between ourselves and what the Bible tells us in passages like this, in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5 that we just read. Remember Paul said, give thanks in all circumstances. And it's like, without even realizing it, we, we excuse away what the Bible has just said to us, and we say, right, right. But, but not all circumstances, right? Not all. Not here, not this. And yet as you read through the pages of the Bible, what you see again and again is example after example of people doing just that. From people like Job, if you've ever read his story, a guy who in a single day loses everything, from family to wealth to children, his physical health even. And yet in response to those circumstances that we think excuse us from needing to worship, we read this. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To the prophet Habakkuk who uh, is told that he and all Israel are about to be taken into exile by a foreign nation. He prays in the midst of that, though the fig tree should not blossom or fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Or even David in the Psalms. You ever read David in the Psalms? And just wondered, like, what's going on with him? Maybe he just, like, hit himself in the head with rocks a lot of time when he was first learning how to use the sling because of the way that he's describing these horrific circumstances, anxiety, danger that he's facing, and yet still closes out the psalm with expressions of thanksgiving to God, trust in his deliverance. It's just like, what is, how is he doing this? What's wrong with these people? We read those things, and if we really pause and we're actually absorbing what we're reading, it doesn't make sense to us. It seems incomprehensible and completely counterintuitive what they're showing us. We're just baffled and stunned by their praise in these contexts. We wonder how suffering like this and praise like that could ever coexist. And we feel like, I could never, I could never respond like that. Good for them. I couldn't do it. But maybe there's a secret here. Maybe there's a secret. Maybe what these stories are showing us is not super spiritual people who were able to do super spiritual things, but a secret of how to respond in situations like this that can actually bring about deliverance. Because what I'd like to submit to you this morning, and I think that's exactly what Peter is getting at, is it's not just possible to worship God in these trials and suffering like this. It's actually essential. It's necessary. As I've been saying throughout the whole morning, it's the one and only hope we have of not being crushed under the weight of these circumstances. 
That's what these stories are showing us. Why? Well, I think the first reason we see is in verse 7 of our passage. Look with me there. Peter says, these, like these trials and suffering, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Praise for him as well as for us. Simply to say that if God is truly sovereign in the midst of all these circumstances and he's worthy of our praise, then the trials that he allows into our lives are never without purpose. And listen, what I mean is they're not without purpose whether we're able to see or comprehend in this lifetime how they have purpose or not. Because that's often the case. We don't. We don't see past what feels like a dark providence. It's almost exactly what we looked at last week, Psalm 23. And that kind of like mistake we make so often in our formation to Jesus where we see the light kind of well-lit, bright paths that lead to green pastures and quiet waters. Those are the paths of righteousness. The dark, lonely paths that lead through the valley of the shadow of death. Those are, you know, those are paths God is with us on, but, but they're not paths of righteousness as well. What we said last week, no, that's exactly the case. They're both paths of righteousness that God leads us on in order to make us look more like Him. The hope found there and here is the same thing. Your suffering is neither random or meaningless. It has a purpose in our formation, which is one of the reasons we can still praise God even in the midst of these trials and suffering. But here's what I think is actually the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason praise is essential and necessary in suffering is because of what we've been saying throughout this whole time this morning. The way that worship focuses our eyes back on Jesus when the wind and the waves are threatening to sink us. That's what, that's what the gift and the aim of praise is. It fixes our gaze back to him. Because the alternative of doing that, and this is sadly what many of us turn to instead of worship in the midst of crisis, is we turn to our own saviors. We turn to our own saviors to try to manage the crisis and the circumstances we find us in. Saviors like control, or I'm just going to grip as tightly as I can. I'm going to try to <clears throat> domineer everybody around me, just kind of scare them into following along. we got to get you out of here to cowardice, where we just like to seek to hide away, curl into a ball, and just try to wait for the storm to blow over. Or most often, coping, where we just seek to numb the pain we're experiencing with everything from food, drugs and alcohol, Netflix, shopping, whatever it is, anything to just not have to experience the fear of what facing this would look like. We turn to all of these pseudo-saviors in order to manage crisis instead of turning to worship, which will fix our eyes back to the one who is our one hope. Because again, don't you see it? It's the one hope. Worship is our one hope in these contexts of suffering because it fixes our eyes and our hearts back on the one who, as we've seen, with a word, causes all wind and waves to cease. That's who we're turning to. That's who we're fixing our eyes on. When we truly understand and allow our hearts and our minds to be moved and influenced and affected by the basis for our praise, and then make it our disciplined habit to regularly respond to God in worship for all that he's accomplished for us in Jesus, in a sense, it starts to not even matter what the context is. 
doesn't matter what the context is. In this letter that Peter is writing to this church, the context is persecution. But the context could be any number of other hard things that we experience through life. Things like depression, things like family strife and strain, chronic illness, um, spiritual dryness. All kinds of different contexts where praise feels counterintuitive but is absolutely appropriate. It's necessary, whatever the context. The thing that returns our focus to the only one that can deliver us, either out from or through suffering and trials, is praise. It's praise. It's worship. You see, it, you see this kind of deliverance happening physically in places like Acts 16. Maybe you know this story. Paul and Silas, they're bound and chained after having been stripped and severely beaten for their faith in God, healing this girl, and everyone is upset and so they're thrown in jail through the night and we're told that around midnight the whole jail can hear Paul and Silas doing what? Praying and singing hymns to God. So in, in this instance praise is the thing that brings about physical freedom. As an earthquake comes in response to their praise their bonds are loosened, the doors to the prison are open and they're freed. That, that can absolutely be the result of our praise and worship in circumstances like these. But I think the kind of deliverance that you see more often, at least in my own experience anyways, is like what I experienced just over seven years ago today when we were in the midst of a difficult pastoral transition at Dunbar Heights. Some of you are around long enough to remember that. Um, well, let's just say there was a lot of different um, perspectives at the time, a lot of different agendas, and it felt crushingly hard. The whole process was overwhelming. It felt emotionally draining. And there were days when I felt like it would crush me. There were days when I felt like, you know what, I think the best thing to do is just withdraw my name from consideration and, and just move on. And so had, as had become my practice around that time, I dropped off my daughters at school. Wife was already at work. And I drove out to Iona Beach in Richmond. I don't know if you've ever been out there out by uh, the airport, there's this five-kilometer-long water treatment pipe that goes like right out into the ocean that you can just walk on. And it's not super populated, at least not always. And it wasn't at this time of the morning. So after spending some time in God's Word, prayer, I, I fasted from eating that morning. I just started walking. I just started walking down the pathway and, and, and waiting, waiting for God to speak to me waiting for him to direct and guide me, to comfort me. And it was the strangest thing. As I walked and waited, it, it was like without even thinking, without even like planning this at all. I was walking and all of a sudden, I found myself singing. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. And sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. And as I was walking and spontaneously singing, weeping, do you know what changed? You know what changed about my life and, and the circumstances I was facing? Nothing. Nothing. And yet, something absolutely changed in me. 
And in the way that I was facing those circumstances, suddenly I saw it with a different perspective. I felt the light of God's face shining into the midst of that darkness. I felt the crushing weight of that feel like it just lifted enough that I could just breathe and keep going. I think that's far more the, the result of praise that we can experience just on an everyday basis. Sometimes it'll be those really profound things. That's possible too. But very often it's this. It's the ability to be delivered through those trials. A kind of counterintuitive power of worship in our lives. A clearing of the fuel in front of us, if you will, that provides a place of rescue and rest. Where the fire now no longer rages over us, but around us. We can experience that pocket of freedom and rest in, in Jesus as we fix our eyes on him and worship. I think worshiping in contexts like this is exactly what the author of Hebrews was referring to when he talked about offering a sacrifice of praise. It is. It's, it feels like a sacrifice in the midst of those times where we're just like surrendering, all, surrendering our will to God in those things, surrendering our expectations of like what this has to look like, what this must do or be or, or how it has to work out and just saying, God, I trust that you've got this and you've got me. I trust you. And then just continuing to walk forward. And what's cool is that I think as we practice this more and more, as we make this a regular, consistent part of our lives, I think we could get to the place. I'm not saying I'm there yet myself, but I think someday we could even get to the place where we'll even thank God for the trials that we're experiencing could even get there as, as we see them, we come to see them as the means by which he is simply drawing us even closer to himself, causing us to look and be even more like him. Or as J.I. Packer once so perfectly said it, he said it this way, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow in order to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach them to himself. Amen. May that be your experience today and in the coming days as we learn to practice this.